Church, if you have your Bibles with you, let's open together to the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John. 1 John is in the New Testament, almost to the very back of the Bible. 1 John. 1 John. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 5. Thank you, Fane, Nancy, and Joel. Uh, 1 John chapter 5. It's going to be 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. Big number 5, little number 13. We're going to start a new sermon series, 1 John chapter 5. Um, anybody have a blue Bible? I don't think we're in the blue Bible. You are. First <laughs> um, John chapter 5. So, if there's one question that I get most as a pastor, I get a lot of questions. But I think one of the questions I receive the most, and one that's always really heavy on my heart, is the question, how can I know that I'm saved? Do you ever feel that? you ever feel that? How do I, how do I know I'm going to heaven? And this question may reflect a lot of things. It might reflect a poor job that I'm doing, or a poor job the American church has done in discipleship. It might reflect a poor teaching on what it means to be a church member, what it means to be baptized. It might reflect a a poor job that we've done in, in helping people understand as they come to be baptized. What does it mean to be baptized? What does our faith mean? What are we saying? So, So that all might be true. However, What we know from Scripture is, this has always been a struggle for Christians. It's always been a struggle. We know for 2,000 years, this has been a struggle for Christians. How do I know I'm a believer? How do I know I'm truly saved? And this is a struggle that I can see for three primary reasons. The first reason is my flesh, my human nature. I sometimes doubt that God loves me. That's my flesh. That's in insecurities. That's, that's trying to deal with my own sin. That's all these things. Does God, can God really love me? Does He really love me? I think the second reason that we struggle with this, and Christians, we've struggled with this for 2,000 years, is we have an enemy that wants to do two things. We have an enemy that wants those who are not saved to be tricked into thinking that they're all right with God. And then we have an enemy who wants to come to those who are saved and try to tell them they're not saved. Are you with me? He wants to take everybody's situation. Christian, if you're right with God through the person of Jesus Christ, the devil wants you to not believe that. And if you're not right with God through the person of Jesus Christ, the devil wants you to believe that you are. Are you with me? And the third reason that we struggle with this is that we have a tendency to condemn one another. We have something inside of us 
that you put any of us in the right situation. If you get up in the morning and you blow a tire on the way to church, you get in the right frame of mind, we can all, we can all condemn one another. Maybe it's in our mind. Maybe you say, I don't, I don't believe that they're saved. Maybe it's how we treat one another. A real Christian wouldn't do something like that. So this question of how I know I'm saved is something we've dealt with for 2,000 years. Something that we will all deal with in our lives. And one of the big obstacles to really believing that we're saved or really landing with both feet can be other people. And this is what we're seeing in this letter of 1 John. We're seeing a church, a group of churches in Turkey, it's where they were, that are in crisis. It's churches in crisis. And every time we talk about something like this, I, I want to I help you understand, help us understand, church is hard, isn't it? I know some of you have been in churches your entire life. You've seen it. Church is hard. And here's the comforting thing to me. It's always been hard. Most of the New Testament are written to churches because church is hard. Are you with me? Church is hard. And so the letter to 1 John is written to churches in the middle of a crisis. Middle of a crisis. They have a group of professing believers. They're not real believers, but a group of professing believers that have been in the church. Maybe they've been in the church for decades. Maybe they've been in the church for months. Who knows? But they've been in the church. They seem to be important members of the church. They start believing and they start teaching Jesus isn't God. They believe and start teaching that Jesus' death is not necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. That makes, that makes a lot of the stuff we deal with at church seem trivial, doesn't it? And you'd think that if somebody stood up and started teaching this in Sunday school or teaching this from the pulpit, you'd think that the church would get up and squash that and say, you gotta, that's not true. You're not a believer. You're not saved. We're not going to allow you to teach this to our children, our young adults, our old men, our old ladies. We're not going to allow that to happen. You'd think that it could be an easily squished away, but it wasn't. This group seemed to get, grow in number, grow in power, grow in influence. And as sin often does, it starts with a little, it's like a virus. You know anything about viruses? It starts with a little thing, and all of a sudden it goes, grows, 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 grows. And all of a sudden it's lots of places in church. And this splinter group, thankfully, by the grace of God, the splinter group broke away from the church. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. It broke away from true believers, but on their way out... These men and women that you've known for years and decades, some of them Sunday school teachers, maybe some of them elders, as they're walking out the door, they say, hey, enjoy hell, you're not saved, we're going with the true church. And don't forget, don't forget, the New Testament is still being written at this time. Letters are going out that, that we will recognize and we will see and God will elevate as His authoritative, inspired, inerrant Word. They don't have all of that yet. 
Aren't we blessed to have Scripture? The Word of God here, we can trust it, we can rely on it. They didn't have that. And so, this church, as you can imagine, anytime a church splits, it's just heartbreak and it's devastating. Anytime there's difficulties in church, I mean, it's hard. It's hard. So on top of that, you have this group of, of phony believers, phony leaders leaving and then telling you, you're not really saved. We're going to the true, true church. They're on their way out. They're saying, you believe Jesus is God? And you're not saved. You believe that Jesus' blood was necessary for your salvation? You're not saved. And so the true church, being devastated by this in crisis, needs direction. So they're asking this question, are they, are they right? They left. Are they right? Are we not saved? Are they not saved? So they ask, and from the grace of God, they, get, they have the Apostle John in their midst. John is called the beloved disciples. You remember, John is one of the three inner circle, the inner circle, inner circle of Jesus' disciples. He's in their church. How cool is that? So you can imagine their conversation. John, you saw Jesus. Help us. Are they right? Are we going to hell? Are we not saved? How can we know? that we are saved. We have that question. They had that question. And isn't God good that He's provided an entire book of the Bible that helps us answer this question? How do we know we're saved? Or perhaps, how can I have assurance of my salvation? Or perhaps even better, how can I be confident that I am a child of God? So we're going to spend some time in the book of 1 John asking that question. How, where do I get my confidence that I'm saved? How, where do I get my assurance that I'm saved? We're going to spend some time in there. And we're not going to hit all those points today. So there's a whole book. But we're, we're going to find out that, that the way we live our lives either gives us confidence or takes confidence away. The way we love one another in church either gives us confidence or takes confidence away. Grows our confidence or shrinks our confidence. But today we're going to ask the, the important question before we get all this started. Does God want us to feel confident in our salvation? It's a good place to start. Does God want us to feel sure of our salvation? So, we're going to start in a bad place to start. We're going to start at the end of the letter. It's kind of backwards. Where he's but at the end of the letter, Paul or, or John tells us exactly, this is why I'm writing this letter to you believers. That's what we're going to talk about today. Does God want us sure of our salvation? Let's read this together. We're only going to read uh, just three, two verses. Two verses. John, big number five, little number 13. Does God even want us assured of our salvation? Little number 13 goes like this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. 
Three verses. Does God want us assured of our salvation? First point, first thing that we see in this passage is God wants you confident in your salvation. God wants you confident in your salvation. I write these things to you. This is an important phrase right here. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. What continued grace from God. He does not just provide us with salvation, but He wants us confident in our salvation. He doesn't want us guessing and wondering. He doesn't want us crumbling under the weight of other people's condemnation of us. He wants us sure and confident in our salvation. That is the grace of God. He doesn't have to do that. I think for some churches and for some of us, and this is outright teaching for some churches, they teach that God doesn't want you confident. He doesn't want you sure of your salvation. God wants you in doubt of your eternity. You see, that's how He can get you to do good things and be a good person. Some people and places teach God wants, it's, it's, a, it's the stick. You know the stick and the carrot? He wants the stick. He wants to whack you every once in a while and make you unsure so that you'll do good things. That's, how, that's, the, only, that's the motivation for doing good things is being afraid that you're going to lose your salvation. That's tragic. And some of us, even, even though that's not taught here and that's not taught maybe where we grew up, that, we, we could see why that's true. We could see how that's true for some people in their hearts to believe that. It's not true. And we can see how it's true that some people do believe this. Because we treat each other this way, don't we? You better behave the way I want you to or our relationship is going to be over. Maybe you grew up in a family that that was the lay of the land, that that was the law. You behave this way, and we'll be all right. Change your behavior, and we're done. But John says, out of the grace, overflow of the grace of God, our Heavenly Father comes to us and He says, no, no, no. I want you confident. I write these things through John the Apostle so that you may know that you have eternal life. That good news? He wants that for us. We see, God wants you confident in your salvation. We see that the anchor of this confidence, the anchor of this assurance is in the past. The anchor of this assurance is in the cross. John uses a Greek word here for know that gets its root in the word see. Not just in the thinking, in the seeing. That's what the know here means. You have seen something in the past, therefore now you know that it's true. And so that's important for this reason, that Christianity is not a religion that somebody goes to a cave and thinks up these brilliant ideas and then writes them down. We are 
a belief system that is based on facts. Jesus walked among us. Jesus performed miracles that only God can do. Jesus climbed on the cross, shed His blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus rose bodily from the grave three days later. These are facts. So John says, he wants you to know. What does he mean by know? He wants you to know. He wants you to see what has taken place. The facts around Jesus' life. And therefore you have seen it. And so now you can know it. You can know it. You can believe it. And John's going to spend the first paragraph of this letter saying, I've seen it. I've touched it. I've felt it. I've hugged him. I've smelled it. I've tasted it. I've seen it all. It has really factually happened. The confidence that we have is a confidence in what Jesus has done. And that's important. And that's a good thing. Because it's not like maybe the family that you grew up in that says your confidence is based on the present. Are you with me? So much of our world says your confidence and how you are with me should be based on the present. It's what you've done for me lately. Not so with our faith. Not so with our gracious God. He wants you confident not in what you do now, but in what Jesus has done in the past. See it. Know it. See it. And know it. One of the most freeing phrases I have ever heard when I was in high school dealing with this exact question. How can I know that I'm saved? The most freeing sentence is this. I hope it's true for you. I hope this frees some of us today. Our salvation is not about feelings. It's about fact. Are you with me? Your relationship with God is not about your feelings It's about facts. The fact of what Jesus has done. The fact that you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. The fact that you trust Him. All these things have nothing to do with your feelings. How you're feeling at the moment does not affect your eternal salvation. Your salvation is based on facts, not feelings. I'm telling you, it changed my life. changed my life. God wants you confident in your salvation. He wants you to know. And then he says, who, who can know? Okay, this is important. He doesn't want, God does, God's not the devil. The devil wants the saved to believe they're lost and the lost to believe they're saved. God wants everyone to believe the truth. So he says, so John writes it like this. I, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. What does he mean there? In the name of the Son of God. That means you, the ones who believe in the true Jesus. You should know. They, the ones who left and over their shoulders said you're going to hell, they should not know. They should not be confident because they're not saved because they don't believe in the true Jesus. This is the same John that wrote back in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says. We got to know who Jesus is. We got to know the real Jesus. 
The real Jesus is God. We see that most clearly in the Gospel of John. John is writing the Gospel of John inspired by the Holy Spirit and he really hits hard that Jesus is God. He elevates the stories about Jesus where Jesus declares he's God. John elevates that. Why? One of the reasons is he's writing this Gospel to a church that is going through something like this. Something like people denying it. So he writes, he said, no, this is the true story. This is the true Jesus. We're so blessed to have this book where we could see clearly who Jesus is. Jesus is God. No matter what those people say as they walk out the door hurling insults, Jesus is God. Jesus died for the forgiveness of our sins. Those things are true, and those things are essential to who Jesus is. You don't got to know what his eye color was. You don't have to know how tall he was. You don't have to know what his favorite breakfast was. But you do have to know that he is God. That's essential. To say that Jesus is not God is not to disagree about his eye color or his height. It's to disagree about something that's so essential to who he is. You can't get that wrong. To worship Jesus as merely human who accidentally died on a cross one day is not worshiping the true Jesus. The fullness of our salvation, think how gracious this is, the fullness of our salvation includes the peace and the confidence that comes in knowing Jesus. What does God tell us all the time? I give you my peace. When the angels show up, what does He say? Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. All these things. God does not want us unsure, jostled in our heart about our eternity. He wants us confident. Part of the fullness of the cross is providing us peace with God and joy that comes from a confidence of the power and effectiveness of His sacrifice. God wants us confident in our salvation. But that's not all He wants us to be confident in. Not just our eternity. Not just our destination. Second point here is God wants you confident in your relationship with Him. God wants you confident in your relationship with Him. Verse 14 says, and this is the confidence that we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So He says He wants you confident in your eternal destination, but being confident in your eternal destination alone is not enough. He wants you confident in your relationship with Him. Confidence towards Him, towards the person. We must understand, salvation is not some cold transaction. It's not going to the grocery store to get a jug of milk where you, turn, you pay your faith and you get a product in return. And you say, thanks God, I'm sure I'll see you around heaven sometime. That's not salvation. Our eternal destiny and our relationship with God is one and the same. Do you see that? 
Heaven is not a destination, it's a relationship. Heaven is heaven because God is there. Heaven, salvation, is not a decision to be on an eternal vacation. You don't go to your travel agent and you say, okay, I got two trips for you. You can go to hell for eternity. You can go to heaven for eternity. Oh, yes, I'll choose heaven. It's a relationship. It's not a team or political party or social club you join. It's a relationship. He wants you confident in your relationship with Him. With Him. It's not fire insurance. It's not a club to join. It's it's being with Him. And listen, this is what excludes so many people. Christopher Hitchens noted Atheist, one of the most famous atheists in the world said, I don't want to go to heaven because God is there. That's the nature, the substance. As If you get to the heart of what it means to be lost, it's I don't want to be near God. That's the nature of it. He was just brave enough to say it. Thoughtful enough to say it. Salvation is first and foremost a redeemed and restored relationship with the Creator and Sustainer of the universe. That's what it is. We were enemies of God under His righteous wrath for being evil doers. Following the course of this world, Scripture says, in the army of the enemy, Scripture says, that was us. And in His grace, and His mercy, Jesus took our punishment, rose again, and says, anyone who calls upon My name will be restored. Will be a child of God. You can't read Scripture and not understand that our salvation is about relationship. He calls you Christian. He calls you sons or daughters of the Most High God. That's relationship. Christian, he calls you chicks underneath the mother hen's wings. That's relationship. He calls you friends at a banquet. He calls you the honored guests at his party. The prodigal son shows us this relationship with the estranged son going off and wasting the father's money and then coming back. And as the father peers at him from the house, he runs to him, throws his arms around him, and kisses him. That's relationship. In in Hosea, God is a husband who is searching for his adulterous wife. That's relationship. We mustn't sterilize it by saying it's some kind of transaction. Yes, he wants you confident in your eternal destiny, but your eternal destiny is wrapped up in your relationship with God. And he wants you confident. He wants you confident that he loves you. Isn't that amazing? He wants you confident that He loves you. What a good God we serve. As a father, then my number one job is to make sure my children know that I love them. Okay, I got other, I got other jobs. Make sure they love God. I, I get all that. But you know what I'm saying. Like The thing that I want most for them is to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength through the person of Jesus Christ, and then to know that I love them. 
And this became crystal clear to me a few a year ago with my, my, my youngest daughter, Charlie. Charlie is almost four. She'll be four in, in March. So a year ago when she started figuring out things like consequences and lying and sinning and all those things, and she really started to click with her. You, you probably remember that with parents. And she did something bad, or maybe she lied, or, or you know, who knows, hit sister or something, I, I don't know, robbed a bank. I'm not sure what she did. I can't remember. But I remember we sat down, we talked about it, and we said, you can't do that. That's a sin. That's, that's really bad, and I'm going to have to put you in time out for that. And I remember she said, but you still love me, right? Melt me to the floor. Yes, I still love you. And it's that feeling, yes, I want her to know that I love her. That's what God has for you, Christian. He doesn't want you guessing. He doesn't want you wondering how he feels about you. He doesn't want you thinking that your sin that you will commit tomorrow has made him cast you off. He doesn't want that. He wants you confident. This is the confidence that we have towards him. He wants you confident. And now, what does he want you to do with this confidence? So, does God want us confident in our salvation? Yes! Does God want us confident in our relationship with Him? Yes. Now, what does He want us to do with it? What's the number one important thing that He wants us to do? It's as if, you know, John only had a certain amount of real estate. His scroll was only this long or so. I don't know. And so he couldn't put down everything we should do with this confidence. So you can kind of picture him thinking through and the Holy Spirit working on his heart. Okay, what should I say to, to describe the confidence? Give them an action. Give them a way to apply this to their life. We might expect him to say, go and... Be confident in your salvation and your relationship with God. Go storm the gates of hell. We can see him saying that. And we should. I say, go share the good news of Jesus with your neighbors. That's a good thing. We should be doing that. That's what he wants us to do. That's not what he says. Could say, go now be confident in God, so go be holy and righteous. We should be. We should strive for that. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. We should strive to be righteous out of a love for God and gratitude for what He's done for us. That's not what He says. Be confident in your relationship with God. What does He want us to do with this confidence? Pray. He wants us to pray. Isn't that mind-blowing? That was a Good Americans, we want to work, right? Good Protestant Americans, we want to get our hands dirty. Give me somewhere to go, something to do. i got these feelings of confidence. I want to go conquer the world. Pray. Pray. This is the confidence we have towards Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request we have asked of Him. How beautiful is that? How important must prayer be? And how rarely do we do it? With the confidence that comes from Seeing the blood of Jesus spilled for you with the confidence brought by the blood of Jesus 
talk to your dad. Isn't that beautiful? How beautiful is this? Not do something good for your dad. Talk to your dad. My friends, and when we were in California, and, and here as well, but when we were in California, we, we were at a church that was made up of three languages, four, four languages, English, Spanish, Laotian, and Korean. Isn't that cool? So cool. When we came here, we had a church meeting our fellowship hall for a long time, and now they have their own building. Praise the Lord for that. Um, but one of the things that struck me you know, you'd go by and we'd all be worshiping on Sunday morning in different areas of the church and you'd go and you'd see. And one of the things that struck me about the Korean church was they prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And then heard a sermon and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And you know what strikes me? Our, our, our brothers and sisters in a Hispanic church in the fellowship hall would meet on Mondays and my small group would get over about when they, they were halfway into their service or so. And we'd come out in the fellowship hall, we'd all be quiet and we'd look in there. You know what they're doing? They're all on their knees and they were praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. And I always wondered, what, what do they know that we don't know? Well, there's, I'll tell you what they know. They know they have the confidence in the blood of Jesus and they know that the most important thing that they can do with that confidence is talking to their father. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Because there is nothing more valuable than having God as our father and having constant access to him. God, we, God our, our father is in total control over every molecule in the universe. Our father knows the future knows where every molecule will be, knows where every person will be, what their thoughts will be. He knows the future. He knows everything. God, our Father, has our best intentions. He has declared Himself our shield, our comforter, our shepherd, our Savior, our husband, our Father. He's called us all these things. There is nothing in the world more valuable than our relationship with Him. And our relationship with Him is about talking to Him. There's nothing more valuable than having the God of the universe being wanting to hear from us. Wanting, he says, to give us our requests. There's nothing more important than that. So, his word says, let your heavenly Father use his knowledge, wisdom, goodness, love, and power to give you what you ask for in prayer. Pray. He says, we can do this because we can be confident He hears us. Confident He hears us. The word there, heed. He heeds us. Not just hears us like the, like the vibrations come in this year and goes through our brain and says the right things and we just kind of, no, He heeds us. He's, what do you have to say? I wanna, I'm heeding your words. He heeds us. We are confident that He heeds our words, that He pays attention to us. And now, look, it, it, we just have to say this, okay? He heeds us. He does not heed non-believers' prayers. He hears them. And does He answer them? Sure, some, maybe sometimes He answers them. But He doesn't heed them. 
I heed the words of my daughters. I will listen to your daughters. I will give them good things. I love your daughters. But I heed the words of my kids. Do you know what I mean? That's God's relationship with you. He heeds them. He heeds your words. What a privilege. He understands every prayer. He heeds every prayer. He pays attention to every word. He understands your emotional state when you pray. pray. Oh, I was praying in bed and I fell asleep. I probably offended God. No, a great illustration of this is when I scoop up my daughter Bailey and she's in my arms and she's talking to me and she's talking to her daddy and she just falls asleep in my arms. I love that. I love that. He heeds your prayers. He understands the motivations behind your prayers. And there's nothing more valuable in all the universe than having the Creator and Sustainer heed your words. Heed your words. And then get this. Be confident He loves to give us whatever we ask for. He loves to give us whatever we ask for. And this is the confidence that we have towards Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us, He heeds us. And if we know that He heeds us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. God loves to give you whatever you ask for in prayer. Have confidence towards Him through Christ. Ask Him anything. He heeds us. He will give us the requests we ask for. What's the important part there? If it's according to His will. God gives us our requests according to His will. Please understand, God loves saying yes to your requests. He loves it, Christian. He loves giving you what you ask for. He loves it. It's his favorite thing in the world to give you what your heart desires. However, he loves you too much to answer yes to all your prayers. He loves you too much to answer, answer yes to all your prayers. Many of our yeses would do us harm, wouldn't they? You remember anything you've prayed for a long time that you asked God, please give this to me, and He didn't? He didn't because that would harm you. Or it would wreck God's plans for ourselves or for others. Or, or our, a yes for our prayers would keep us from greater grace or keep us from growing in maturity. How many of us would be married to the person we're married to if God always said yes to our prayers? You know what I mean. You're all afraid to hold your hand up, but you know what I mean. I mean even something like that, and you know, thinking about your spouse and thinking about You've dated other people and in that you've prayed for them and you prayed, some of us have prayed, man, this is the person for me, God, give me this person. And you haven't. And you thought, oh, God did not, I can't believe he didn't. And then he brought you this person. You said, this is who I've been waiting for my entire life. Thank you, God, for saying no there. It's a perfect example. So God's no is always for our best. Well, how does this work for God's will? How, how does that 
fit together. What are some things that, how, how, does this, how does this fit together? God's will and me asking, and sometimes he says yes, sometimes he says no. This example I've used before, it just works in my mind. When my daughter wakes up in the middle of the night and she's thirsty, she's thirsty. She's too young to go and walk around the kitchen and do all those things, you know. So she's thirsty. She wakes up at, at 1 o'clock and she's thirsty. If she doesn't call for me, I won't give her water. With me, I'm asleep. I know God doesn't sleep, but I'm asleep. I'm not going to give her what she calls for me. Please, give me water. She doesn't, she doesn't do that. I'm not going to give it to her. In the same way, there are some things in life that we do not ask for from God that He would give to us if we were to ask. Isn't that kind of a scary thought? What don't we have that God would willingly give us that we just haven't asked for? I'd love to, give, to get up and give her water if she would only ask. Now, if she calls and wakes me up, I will happily, I will almost happily wake up at 1 o'clock and give her water. That's how I'm, I'm different than God, right? I will give her a glass of water. It is my will. Why? Because I love giving her what she wants. I love that. It's one of the favorite things in the world to give my kids what they want. I'll happily give her some water. However, if she wakes me up in the middle of the night to give her a big glass of Dr. Pepper, I will say, no, that is not in my will for you. Because that is not good for you. How about some water instead? That's how it works with God. There are certain things that we do not have because we do not ask. Scripture says that. God loves to give you what you ask for. Ask for things and pray that they're according to His will. And if you don't get them, know that they weren't and something better is on the way. What are some things you can ask for? What are some things that God loves to give to you? Pray that God gives you joy. Pray that God gives you peace. Pray as Jesus did, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Pray as Jesus did, give me my daily bread. Pray as Jesus did, help me forgive those who have done ill toward me. Pray that you'll be used by God to make faithful followers. Pray for growing in maturity. Pray for fighting sin. And do me a favor. Do me a favor. We talk about making faithful followers around here. We talk about how there's 30,000 unchurched people around us. And as we'll see in 1 John, if we don't love the church, we should lose assurance of our salvation. So what we should do, we look around 30,000 unchurched people, we should be concerned for their souls. Do me a favor. One of the things you should be praying for every single day is that your church is effective in making faithful followers. Are you with me? Church, is that something that we don't have because we do not ask? How scary. We have a father. I want to give you the requests of your heart. What if those 30,000 people became faithful followers of Jesus 
and he would give it if we'd only ask. So do me a favor. One application. There's lots of applications. One application. Commit to praying that Trinity is effective in making faithful followers. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Christian, God loves you. Christian, God wants you confident that He loves you. Christian, God wants you to know He is your Father. Christian, God wants you to know that He heeds your words. So pray. Pray. And and expect God to answer your request. And when you see a no, know that it's because your Heavenly Father has something better for you. And Christian, pray that we make faithful followers of Him.